all believers, each one of us who professes the name of Christ, who have found great confidence in the security that God gives us through His gracious salvation, through the work of Christ, all of us need to continually be reminded from God's Word of that very confidence that we have. We need to be told that again and again and again. Yes, I realize it's, it's a fact. The Bible says it, but we need to be told again and again and again because you know, while we know these things, often our lives present the reality that we don't really know these things. That we, we kind of waver on that truth. And we also need to be reminded of the continual effects of sin upon our lives in this age. It's, it's of great importance that, that we are constantly preaching to ourselves that, that sin is seeking to undo us. That, that Satan is, is tempting and drawing us and, and seeking every opportunity both individually and corporately as a body of believers to distract us away from the very glory of God and to undermine the very confidence that we have in this great Gospel, And it, it is this knowledge of this reminding of this confidence and the reminding of ourselves of this our utter sinfulness that will compel us to seek humility in our confidence and victory over our sinfulness. Now, as we turn our attention this morning to John 13, we will discover that while there is much going on in this text, much more than we can really address this morning, we will find that it promotes... Confidence in our standing with God, a continued cleansing in our sanctification, and humility in our service. So read with me John 13, verses 1 through 20. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put, put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now. But after these things, you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Simon Peter Peter said to him, Lord, not, not only my feet then, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus answered him, the one who has has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. And that is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put, put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who has sent him. 
If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And Father, we do ask this morning as we give ourselves over in these moments to these ancient words that are ever true. I pray, Lord, that we would find ourselves underneath the word and not over them. I pray that we would, by your grace, humble ourselves this morning and allow the word to speak to our hearts. Even the familiar ones that we've heard, may they rest fresh and anew upon our hearts to transform us by your grace. And Father, we are reminded that it is by the very means of the word of God that you have chosen to accomplish your purposes. And so this time that we take in these next few moments is imperative. It's significant. And so, Lord, I pray that we would engage ourselves not as passive hearers, but as active hearers who become a part of this message, a part of your word as we seek to receive it, not only by our physical ears, but spiritually speaking, that we hear well and receive it in our hearts, that we might embrace it and that it might affect the way that we therefore live beyond this moment. May you be glorified in all that we do, all that's said. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are three things or three truths that I want to address from this text this morning. And let me give those three to you as we began. Number one, those who have been saved by the grace of God enjoy a confident standing before God. Number two, all who truly believe will experience continual cleansing from the world's dirt as the means of their sanctification. And number three, True believers are called to humility and service following Christ's example. Now, in introducing this episode that we're reading about, and and, and this is just one portion of what's going on in this, this lengthy episode that we're going to be reading about over the next few weeks... As John introduces it, he, he takes three of the, the first three verses just kind of to give us a setting. I mean, he gives us a lot of information to set us up for this, this little illustration uh, that Jesus engages in. He provides some background information for us. Or really, rather, he seeks to remind us of some things we've already been reading about. But he wants to, to bring to the forefront as we read this particular episode. He wants to remind his audience of a few significant details. So we might have them available as we seek to understand uh, what John is seeking to portray. And ultimately the Spirit of God through the inspiration of John's writing is wanting us to understand from this particular event. Here's a couple of those things that, or here are the things that John kind of introduces. We're not going to spend our time here while we could. First, we recognize that John wants us to understand very clearly that Jesus was very aware that his hour was at hand. He begins, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew, or really, literally, before the Passover uh, feast, Jesus knowing that his hour had come. 
And all these things are really a setting up of the statement in verse at the end of verse 3 or verse 4. Yeah, beginning of verse 4, he rose from supper. So everything up to that point is really setting the stage. Knowing that his hour had come, number one. Number two, Jesus' mission, which was his mission from the very beginning, was, was driven by the sovereign will of God, but also by his immense love for those who belong to him. This is knowing that his hour had come to depart out of this world and then having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them. My version says to the end, really, uh, the, the translation is giving the idea that he's loved them to the fullest extent, not chronologically to the end, though he did and continues to, but rather he loved them to the fullest expression of what divine or true love really is. So knowing his hour was at hand, Loving his own <clears throat> to the uttermost. And in three, Jesus, J- Judas's plan of betrayal was already reality when all this was occurring. As we read this event, we're about to read, we've read about, we're about to talk about the reality or the, the plan that was in the heart and mind of Judas was already there. And Jesus was very aware of that as well. So knowing his hour was at hand and loving his own during the supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot. And then finally, Jesus was aware that God's design put the fate of sinful humanity, all of sinful humanity, solely in his hands. It continues to say, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God. So there's there's our basis. That's the foundation for what's getting ready to happen. Jesus was aware that the cross was in view. His eyes were upon the cross. Jesus was, was, was loving and had been in loving his own to the fullest extent that, that love could even describe. He was aware, knowing and the thoughts were in his mind of what was about to happen through one who had walked with him for the past three years. Judas Iscariot was about to be the catalyst to which to speed the final moments of the hour. And Jesus was fully aware that human destiny was in his hands. So death, betrayal, humiliation, and ultimate victory were the issues that are upon Jesus' mind when this event unfolds, which provides us ultimately the, the context of the meaning of how we are to read a story like this, a narrative about something that took place. The significance of this event is revealed to us, to John's audience, which is us as well this morning, in the conversation that we're going to find takes place between Peter and Jesus. But as we seek to understand what is God's desire to, to what God desires to portray through this event, that those first three verses, they set the tone. So we understand that when we read about this foot washing event, that we do so through the lens of the cross. It has everything to do with the cross. It's not to be isolated and separate from the cross. And so, number one, those who have been saved by the grace of God enjoy a confident standing before God. You see... Jesus rises, and we see the narrative, he, he sets aside his outer garment, he wraps a, a, a cloth around his waist, he takes a basin, he pours water in it, and it says he begins to wash 
their feet and to wipe them with that towel. But then we find that he comes to Simon Peter. Now we don't know how many feet he had washed, not, not important. But when he comes to Peter, Peter's response to Jesus' act of washing his feet initially seems to be motivated by an attitude of great respect for his teacher. And it may very well have been, we don't know, but you know, I often think, and this is me inserting here, uh, that you know, Peter was the one who often spoke much further down the road than he was ever walking, right? You know, he, and then he ended up putting his foot in his mouth, so to speak. And I, I say that very humbly because I, I often say that I, I must stand here before you and speak further down the road than I'm walking. I must declare objective truth even when I struggle with it because otherwise you, you can never surpass me if it's only where I am. And so even Peter speaking further down the road, oh, Lord, no, of course not. But Jesus makes it clear as he approaches Simon Peter that what was happening was, was not going to be understood. They, they did not understand in the moment. Now, that's not to say they didn't know what he was doing. They knew he was getting ready to wash feet. But there was something intrinsic in this act that they were not going to grasp, he says. But he says, after these things, you'll understand. And most likely, again, taking the lens, the context of the view of the cross, that after these things likely refers to everything that is about to transpire. The betrayal, the trials, the crucifixion, his death, and ultimately his resurrection. And I think culminating in Acts chapter 2 in the coming of the Spirit, because we're going to find soon in John, Jesus is going to begin talking about what the Spirit's role is in the life of the believer to teach everything that Jesus had, to remind us of everything Jesus had taught us. And this would be one of them. So after these things, they would understand that this wasn't just about some water and some smelly feet. This was something much more significant. So Jesus seeks to make that clear from the beginning, that this is going to be unclear. So the disciples, they view this in the moment. They, they are perceiving Jesus' action from a very earthly or worldly perspective, a cultural point of view. In other words... They recognized that what Jesus was doing was to be done by a lesser person in the household. In fact, a slave. It would be the slave, the, the bond servant who would be the one who would welcome guests off the dusty roads and be expected to wash their feet. Not highly respected people, dignified people, people of high position, and definitely not teachers and most certainly not lords. Why would Jesus do such a thing? Why would he take this role before his disciples? I mean, you would think that he would be trying to make a final impression upon them of greatness, right? I mean, to to sear in their minds how wonderfully great and powerful he really is. So they'd be prepared in the midst of what was coming to to go forth with confidence, right? That's that's what we would think. If I were designing it, that's what I would do. I'd be like... What could I impress them with in this moment? What can I do that would be grand to, so that they can hang on to that in the moments that are about to come? Well, I guess if I were designing it, there wouldn't be a cross involved at all, right? Jesus sought to use this simple act to teach several significant truths to his followers. And, and that would be included, or that would include you and I this very day. Not just the original audience here, but that's why it's recorded in God's inspired word so that we get to sit at this table for a few moments that we get to gather with the disciples on this last evening and see the truths that Jesus seeks to portray, portray or, or unveil for us. 
So Peter seeks to relieve Jesus of the washing of his feet. I mean, the other disciples, they, they let him do it, right? They're, they're not as thoughtful or respectful. So Peter says, no, you'll never wash my feet. You're, you're way too important to wash my feet. I would never make you stoop to that position. But Jesus' initial response sheds light onto the necessity of Christ's work on the cross. And the sinners need to receive this vicarious act on their behalf in order to have a share with Christ. Because Jesus says, whoa, Peter, you don't get it. But unless I wash you. Now, this is not a reference to the, the particular act of the foot washing. But he generally says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Unless you uh, receive a humiliating act by your Lord, you have no share or inheritance with me. And that would include the sharing of the coming, the subsequent victory of resurrection uh, after the cross. This response by Jesus, you'll have no part with me unless I wash you, points to the necessity of every sinner who would be cleansed, who would desire to be cleansed uh, from our sins to accept the humiliating work of Christ as our only hope. Now, there's a great paradox implied in this. There's, there's, a, there's an upside-down issue here to receive humiliation in order on behalf, by our Savior in order to share in the grace and forgiveness that He offers. This is the very epitome of foolishness. And we get that. This is foolishness. And this is what Paul later writes in 1 Corinthians and other places. If a teacher uh, washing his disciples' feet was humiliating then imagine the idea of a crucified Savior. I mean, how ridiculous. No wonder the world thinks us to be ignorant and out of our minds. That should come as no shock to us. Because we recognize that what we proclaim, what we stand on is foolishness to this world. Peter's response to Jesus' words was to go to the other extreme. Well, (laughs) Okay, if I have no part with you, if you don't wash my feet, well, then no, don't just wash my feet. Let's do it all, Lord. Or in this case, Peter says, my head and my hands also, not just my feet. And it's here that the great truth of the believer's confidence is revealed in this particular episode. It's not only here, but it is definitely here. Jesus tells Peter that there is no need to wash the rest of him because he's clean. He's pure. He's forgiven. In our terms, he's saved. There was no need for him to to go through that again. There there was no reason for those who have been cleansed from their sin by God's marvelous grace to, to do it over and over and over again because forgiven is forgiven. Once and for all, as we would say. And now Jesus has already in this gospel previously taught us that of all that the Father has given him, How many would he lose? None. He would lose none of the ones that the Father had given him. John chapter 6. And then later he also says that that out of them, those who belong to him, none of them, nothing could pluck them out of his hand. So this is not a new truth, but it's definitely reiterated through a final act of Christ in this humble act of service. So here we find Jesus stating in these words... You have no need to be washed again if you've been washed. We find what we call the assurance of salvation or maybe the security of the believer or as Baptists have often termed it, once saved, always saved. 
There's security in this being cleansed by Christ. Jesus makes plain that the person who has been washed has no need for another washing. But he goes on to state that while he denies the need for Peter's body to be washed, he affirms the need for his feet to be washed again. Those who have been saved by the grace of God enjoy a confident standing before, before God. Number two, all who truly believe and will experience continual cleansing from the world's dirt as the means of their sanctification. While Jesus' first point teaches us that our salvation is secure, there is still more that must be done. Now, we have to be careful here. You, you can get on some shaky ground. But when we speak of salvation, we usually are speaking about what the Bible calls justification. But there is more to salvation than just justification. Just justification. The Bible teaches be more than that. It absolutely upholds this glorious truth of justified, but it goes further. Justification is the biblical truth that that means to be declared in right standing with the judge. In this case, or in our case, with God. This declaration is based not upon anything, the, the sinner, that's you and I, anything that we deserve or have somehow earned, but solely upon the perfect righteousness of Christ and Christ alone. It is on the basis of Christ's righteousness that believing sinners are declared right. The judge says righteous because of Christ. Salvation, however, also includes a continuing work of salvation. This is what the Bible terms sanctification. You see, we were saved. Justified, made right, sure, in confident standing with God that will never change. Justified. But we are being saved. The Bible teaches us clearly we are in the process of being saved. Moving from our justification to what will ultimately be glorification. Sanctification is the process by which a sinner is made righteous. You see, the first one is declared righteous because of another. It's inherited righteousness. It's imputed righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. The righteousness of Christ credited to your account. But sanctification is the process by which God then takes the one who has been justified and daily throughout the walk in this life begins to actually make them righteous. So more and more holy. Not perfect in this life, but processing towards full and final Glorification. So justification, declared righteous. Sanctification, becoming holy. Becoming righteous. Or as some had stated it, becoming in practice what you already are in truth. You see, God has declared it. Now we're just working it out and becoming it. And it's guaranteed, praise the Lord. It's not ultimately by our power alone. One of my favorite scriptures in, in the Bible is in Philippians 2 where it says, Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. That's sanctification. That's what he's talking about. For it is God who has worked in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So do it, people. Believers, you've got something to do, but praise the Lord. He's working on our behalf, granting the ability and the desire for us to process towards holiness in our lives. Jesus' response to Peter not only reveals the secure position that we just spoke about of all believers in their salvation, but also the need for this continual cleansing throughout our life. 
Now, Jesus uses this customary act, this cultural act of foot washing to make a spiritual point. It's a it's a metaphor of sorts. It's an illustration, example or a symbol or I'm not sure which is the right term to use, but it's pointing to something beyond itself. It isn't about literally washing feet. It's used a cultural understanding to point to something else. While a person who is bathed is clean, the part of the body that comes in contact with the world, in this case, the feet, must undergo additional washings. Now, in our terms, that would be like calling the kids in for dinner, right? We don't say, it's time for dinner, go take a bath. What do we do? It's time for dinner, go wash your hands. Why? Why your hands? Because that's the part that they've stuck down in the dirt and they've grabbed all the bugs up with and got the bug guts all over. I mean, this is the part that's, in, that's been affected, right? So go wash the hands because it's come in contact with the world. That's our culture. The foot washing thing is, is theirs. In the same way, the person who has been saved remains so without any chance of losing that status. But the dirt that results from continual contact with the world that we live in must be continually removed. Not to remain justified, but as the means of God sanctifying us. You see, in Ephesians 5, Paul speaks of this concept when he addresses the husband and wife. And he he speaks of sanctification as happening by the washing of water with the word. In Romans 12... A little less obvious, Paul speaks of us not being conformed to this world, the ways of this world, but rather to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, which we understand throughout Scripture comes as we are overtaken by the Word, changing the way we process and think in this world. Among many other Scriptures that teach these very things, we can gather that while we may be saved, we will find ourselves affected and infected by the world in which we live whether we want to or not. And by the world, we don't mean the physical earth, but rather the philosophies and the ways and the standards of the world around us. And as believers, we are still sinners, drawn away by the lust of the flesh to conform to the world's ways and standards. I admit it. There are many times which I see the world knowing full well that their way is not God's way, and I am drawn to that. Something in me still wants to pull me away and cause me to conform, to mold myself to those sorts of things. And we must guard ourselves against this world. And we do so by having, proverbially speaking, our feet continually washed or continually being cleansed. And this cleansing is done so by the means of the word of God. It's the very thing we sing about, this ancient word. It is the word of God that molds us into the image of Christ. It is the word of God that reveals our sin to us as we place ourselves underneath its teaching. It is the word of God that keeps us from being conformed to this world and becoming ignorant and oblivious to our plight in this life. It is this same ideal that John likely has in mind when he declares in his first epistle... If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Technically speaking, I'm supposed to have a tie if I speak technically, but technically speaking, a true believer 
never ceases being saved if he fails to confess a particular sin. Hear that. If you are saved, your failure to confess a particular sin doesn't change that status. If you forgot, it just slipped your mind, or even if for the moment you're just being obstinate, it doesn't change that status. However, we are clearly taught the discipline of confession in the Word of God. But what exactly does that mean? Well, to confess our sins literally means to to say the same thing. The, The word for it in Greek is homologos, homo and logos, same word. So to confess literally means to to call sin in this world what God calls sin. To agree with God and say, yep, you're right. Your word says it and I believe it. No matter how I feel, no matter what this world says about it, I'm going to stand on the word of God and I'm going to say the same thing that God says about the world's ways and about my own sin. So to confess simply is our acknowledging as sin what God calls sin. And it is by this means, by means of continued exposure to the word of God, as we we hear it preached, as we read the word, as we interact with it in our small groups or community, uh, uh, different gatherings that we have, as we are exposed to the word of God, it is through this that we grow in our sensitivity to the sin in our lives and, and begin to recognize as sin, even things that we once said weren't sin. And when we become aware of such things in our lives, we can either justify them and say, what's wrong with that? Everybody does it. There's nothing wrong if you, with doing this. Or we can say, with God, because God calls it sin, I'm going to call it sin. This is biblical confession. While our security is not dependent upon how much or often we pray for forgiveness... Because all was forgiven at the cross. And the moment we believed, we were past, present, and future sins. Forgiven all. All true believers will grow in holiness in this life. And therefore will find themselves calling more and more sin the things that dishonor God. And that would include things that in themselves are not wrong. But are not being done for the glory of God. The result is that we will find our dirt that we collect from this world, being cleansed as we progress in this process of sanctification, becoming and being made more and more like our perfectly righteous Savior, Jesus Christ. And as that is the case, our desire for the glory of God and all that that entails will also increase. And therefore, our determination, our personal determination, apart from somebody else saying, you better do this, our determination to live more holy will also increase, along with our increased desire for the glory of God. So all true believers, all who truly believe, will experience continual cleansing from the world's dirt as the means of their sanctification. And finally, number three, true believers are called to humility and service following Christ's example. In verses 12 and and through the rest of this episode, Jesus uses this very same act. He's he's used it in one way and with the washing and cleansing. And now he takes this this very same act and, and, and teaches yet another significant truth. The truth we call humility. The boldness that comes from our confidence and our standing with God must 
be tempered with our understanding of the means by which God decreed the gospel to go forth to the ends of the earth. God could have chosen the lofty things of this world. He could have chosen those in high position in this world. He could have used military might to spread the truth of his sovereignty to the ends of the earth for his glory. But he didn't, did he? Instead, God chose the foolish things, the despised things, the weak things of the world to accomplish his glorious purposes. Listen once again from 1 Corinthians to Paul's words. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Paul's for the answer? No. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews, they demand signs. They want to see something. The Greeks, they seek wisdom, lofty ideas. But we preach not those things, but rather Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Power and prestige may very well have their place in this world and in the, in the world for Christians even. But they are the exception to the rule. We often think that a celebrity or a, a famous athlete has more ability to influence the cause of the gospel than anyone else. But yet scripture declares quite the opposite. The gospel shines the brightest through the simple lowly acts of the obscure. We will likely never read their stories. But countless numbers of unnamed believers have been and are and continue to be the means by which God has and is declaring his glory throughout this world. Jesus, therefore, uses a lowly act to teach his disciples an essential truth about their role in the gospel ministry. If he, their Lord and teacher, is lowering himself to such a level then who are we to demand respect from the world? Jesus tells them that he did this to set an example. And that as such, they should follow him in doing the very same thing. And while the disciples, again, didn't grasp the extent of what Jesus was teaching them, we find that they eventually did. And we live in a culture today that drives us to success. Success that is defined by the word better. Better education, better jobs, better pay, better houses, better neighborhoods, better... You continue with that list. And, and I'm not trying to say that those things are bad. But we're, we're driven by that concept of better. And there's never enough. It's always better. That's success. Ever increasing. We determine as well, because of that... An individual's worth by, the, by their betters and by the balance in their checking accounts or the position that they hold in their job. We esteem others based upon matters that say nothing about the character of that person. And as a result, even we 
the church, who profess the name of Christ, are compelled to follow suit. To be just like the world in these things. To uphold those kinds of things. To make those things more important than other things. We value people on the same basis that the world does. On their prestige and their position and their money and those kinds of things. Even as believers. And according to our Lord, we are to be different. We are not to value people on those basis. That doesn't mean a person who fits that bill is to not be valued. But it is not because of those things. Jesus then goes on to even attach what's called a beatitude in John. There's two beatitudes in John, and this is one of them. Blessed is he. He attaches this blessing to the one who who comprehends this reality of, of lowering oneself for the sake of serving the glorious gospel. The one who grasps that and then not only knows it because, hey, we can all say it, right? But then lives it out by serving others through the emptying themselves of their pride and their prestige in order to, to, to exemplify and to teach the very essence of the gospel message through simple, obscure acts of service. Paul, again, dealt with this worldly mindset in the very same epistle that we just looked at in, in Corinth. They were esteeming some above others based on their view of how wise they were, how significant they were. Some were following this one and saying, forget that one, he's not important. And as a result, the church was divided upon what person they should follow and which one was more important. And Paul's response was this, as one of those who was in the mix, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you became kings. And we would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. I mean, think of that. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world. The refuse of all things. According to the world, Paul and those like him are nothing. Scum. Refuse. According to God... They are the very means by which many would be introduced to the Savior and their lives would be forever changed. We, both individually and corporately, need to remember what our purpose is. We are not called to be bigger and better than the next. We're not called to be the popularized church or the latest fad in religion. We are not called to gain significance in the world's eyes. We are called to declare A very foolish message about sin and a Savior who died a criminal's death and then conquered death by rising again. How silly is that? We are called to follow Christ in his cross-bearing death by seeking to serve those who do not deserve to be served. We are called to to not think too highly of ourselves and to not pursue lofty worldly goals, but rather the very glory of God. We are called to be like our Savior who, 
though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to tightly, but rather emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Who would have thought? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our aim, our purpose is nothing more and nothing less than the glory of God. God has provided the message that we must declare and the mean by w- means by which we are to declare that message that will alone afford him all the glory. Ours is simply to trust and obey. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus. And might I add to bring God glory, but to trust and obey. Put on then as God's holy ones chosen and beloved Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and above all these, put on love. Those of us who have been saved by the grace of God, we enjoy and know, please know, you enjoy a confident standing before God that will not change. All of us who have profess the gospel, who have believed the gospel and and repented of our sins, we will and should expect to experience continual cleansing from the world's dirt that we, as a means of our continued sanctification, that is being made more and more holy like our Savior. And all of us who call ourselves child of God are called to humility in service. To think of others as better than ourselves. To think of those who the world would say are less than us as more than ourselves. Following not some clever design, but Christ's very example. Our Father, we love you. We thank you for the word that you have graciously given us to wash us, to cleanse us, to serve as the means of our being sanctified, being made more like you. And Father, we admit this morning our great need to be more holy, to be more humble, to be more faithful, to be more of a lot of things. But Lord, I thank you that our hope for all these things is not in our ability, but it is in your power working in us. And so even with that, we can confidently say this morning, what I am not, I one day will be by the grace of God. And so, God, I pray that that truth would be a compelling factor for us to go forth from this place with great confidence in humility, wanting to tell the world of this foolish message that we follow. And to do so with great confidence and great joy and without any shame. While we even recognize our utter failure as sinners over and over again. Father, I pray for those who are here today. We recognize our, our, our presence here is, while from our perspective was our doing, we know that this is a divine appointment, that in your providence we are here 
And we've heard these words. And I pray that these words will rest heavy upon our hearts and compel us to respond in a way that is necessary for each of us to to be moved forward in this process of sanctification. And that's very likely different for each of us in many ways. But Father, if there is anyone here this morning who, who can't even talk of sanctification because they've never experienced justification, they have never repented of their sins and believed the gospel and been declared by the great creator of this universe right because of the righteousness of Christ, I pray today that you would bear heavy upon their hearts and convict them of their sin that they might experience the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and the transforming power that, that comes from it. For those of us who do know you, who can say confidently that we are yours and we shall always be, I pray that today would be a reminder for each of us of, of the joy that is ours to continue in this great thing we call salvation as we labor, knowing that you are working in us to, to become more like our Savior and to do so with great joy and confidence. And I pray that the result of our time here this morning would be your glory. So work in our hearts and our lives, both individually and corporately as a church, that we might each be a testimony, a faithful testimony of your gospel when we go forth from this place this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.